Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. A player back with you here on 720 WGN. So Tom and Dick Smothers, known as the Smothers Brothers, crafted themselves into a musical comedy team that represented the struggles of the nation in the 1960s. In 1960, they signed a recording contract with Mercury Records, and by 1965, they had recorded eight albums. In January 1961, the brothers were invited to perform on NBC's The Tonight Show with host Jack Parr, and the rest is history. Their award-winning variety show reached nearly every household in America in the late 1960s, and despite the high ratings and success of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, host network CBS became increasingly uncomfortable with the show's content. The struggle between the Smothers Brothers and CBS helped define the role of entertainment, especially television, would play in social change. They've been brothers since they were born in the late 30s, together on stage for nearly 65 years, and they're back on a limited tour, and they'll be appearing later this month in Jacksonville, Florida. And for the next hour, we welcome comedy legend Dick Smothers. Dick, thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, it's great to be on your show. I, I am thrilled that you're you're joining us. You, you are a legend uh, in comedy, and I, I was mentioning to you before the call uh, my sister and I had this album we discovered, I think when we were like seven, eight years old, called The Golden Hits of the Smothers Brothers, Volume 2, and mm-hmm. we must have played that album 50 times, and still today, and I listened to it yesterday, still today, every single bit of it stands up. Well, thank you, thank you. Did you, a question, did you ever search for Volume 1? Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the funny thing. So I was like, no, I did. And then I just realized, okay, there's the joke. There is no Volume 1. I, <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah when we released the, the Time Life uh, videos of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, we, we started with the third season. And I said, and they said, well, why do you want the third? It's just because they'll be so bored by the first uh, end of the first season, they won't want to see what happens next. <laughs> that's brilliant. No, that's brilliant. So, so, well, I don't know how brilliant it is, but we we were short on material, but but long on timing and being in the right point in history with the right mentality. And my brother was Tommy was uh, born in a, in a delightful, damaged fashion like we all are that's what makes us unique you know we're, sure. we have these little defects and assets and and they don't go across the board if you're smart and math uh like einstein i understand one time he left the house to get on the uh, the, the uh, train to go to go to work and he forgot his pants so you know <laughs> but he was not yeah, right. a dumb guy that kept forgetting pants it's just that well tommy has dyslexia uh is part of it he's really deep uh, smart guy and our sensitivities when the 60s happened, and really important, uh, the Kingston Trio had popularized uh, folk music, and it, and it really hit like nothing else in the colleges, young people. And that was in time for, the, and that was in the late 50s, then the 60s came in, and all the civil discourse and the, right. you know, the, the drug spot, uh, civil rights, all that stuff was in place. And we were in place. You absolutely you know, were, yeah, yeah. I think the people that were really effective in the young people in the '60s were we were product of the '50s, and we were, and most of the were either boomers, we're calling boomers now, or we predated the boomers by about ten years. So I know when um, we we can relate to the boomers because we're only say 
10 years apart plus. And I relate it to the, the Jack Bennies and the Burns and the sure. Scottons and all this stuff because they were in place and really cooking. Like when you discovered us, we had established ourselves. But getting there was the, the most long shot of anything, how we got there. But you didn't care. You All you knew is there were certain things that were out there. And yeah. you were young. Yeah. And the, this, uh, people don't realize, that, like the Beatles, what were they influenced by? The American Songbook. That's right. Like anybody else, classical yeah. American Songbook, all that stuff. And then they took that as a, as, as a foundation with their creative, creativity and, and, and the right amount of drugs and input and social things <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. And, 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 and a combination of, of brains and talent. You know that mixture, and and did something that nobody ever done before. Did before with the same stuff that we all saw, and didn't see anything different. Well, speaking so, of the Great American I, Songbook, I mean that's kind of where you got a lot of that stuff from in the very early days when you and Tommy started performing oh, yeah. together. It was about the music, but when did comedy come into that? Well, the, the first time we had not enough songs to fill up the show. <laughs> <laughs> we, needed, we, we needed more time. Yeah, and, and that, hey, that's that's pretty common. You know, what are we going to do with all this extra time? Uh, maybe that's the first uh, musical. Uh, they said, "What are you going to do with this uh, this show you have? You want to show it's too short? Oh, we'll sing a few songs and fill up the time. That's a, we'll call it a musical." <laughs> and, uh, and Tommy and I uh, were so blessed that uh, uh, Tommy, I keep saying blessed. Everybody was blessed. The same yeah. same era we lived there, but the the, the there were story songs around. Uh, like the, Tom Dooley, John Henry, sure. uh, all that stuff. That, and folk music came out with that really hit songs in the early fifties with the uh, with uh, um, the, the Weavers, yeah. Pete Seeger, mm-hmm. Beautiful Brown Eyes, Good Night Irene. They were top hits. They didn't relate to any group, social group, uh, ethnic group, or anything. They were just there. And then when the youth came in and they they really for the first time had something to say and nowhere to say it, we we happened to have a TV show that related to them and we filled it with young writers and people that could connect with the uh with the counterculture and uh, and all the stuff that was happening you know pot war the, the draft civil rights uh you name it and and by accident we were the right people to fill a time slot on sunday night at nine o'clock opposite bonanza which was a dark hole i don't know if a lot of your audience realize or, or think about it that if you were watching a show at uh, nine o'clock, there was two other shows you could not tape or right. could record. Right. Could not record. Yeah. You missed them. No, Bonanza so was number one, and it was unbeatable, really, at that time. It was terribly unbeatable. Yeah. And by accident, they just uh, because uh, William Morris Agency talked to CBS and to say you get, you got to have some younger hosts. Uh, you know, you're you're, you're aging. Your, your team is the players on your field are are aging like a football team. Let's get some young people. And it happened to be that time, and we were in place in our career, that uh, they picked us. And it was like a suicide mission, but we, uh, Tommy <laughs> says, well, what the hell? We can't lose. Everybody gets is not successful here, so we could only be like everybody else. But we could maybe do something, and we'll have our own show. How many times are you offered your own show? We are talking to comedy legend Dick Smothers, and there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. Very early on, though, Dickie, you were you were doing uh, early television appearances on some classic shows. So you talk about the early days of the of the Jack Parr show or the Steve Allen yeah. show. That's really. Yeah. I, I remember Jack Parr reading this that he said to you guys, "I don't know what you fellas have, but nobody's going to steal it." 
because it was kind of so original what you were doing, right? Yeah. So, you know, you pick up on on the right things. And sometimes you could be right on. We weren't ahead of our times. Had we been ahead of the times, people who are ahead of their times are not effective. Uh, You're pushing the envelope. Um, We were were lucky that Jack Parr, uh, when I do the improv, by the way, in Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, my job is called Armando, that form of a musical, Mondo. And I'm going to tell a very uh, truncated, very short story of how improbable it was that we ended up on the Jack Parr show and... On a, on a Friday morning, nobody knew about us, and the next day, everybody was talking about us. Wow. That is That was like a miracle. Yeah. But Jack Parr, all these people that you mentioned, Jack Parr was the only late-night show. Everybody wanted to get on it. How did two people from the West Coast, working a little club in New York City as an opening act, get picked to be on that show? They yeah. haven't even heard of us. So I'll tell that in the story. Yeah. And then Steve Allen, you know, who loved and collected comedians, and... Uh, he happened to to have another show that year, uh, the same year, 1961, when we were on Jack Parr, January 61. And he picked us along with Tim uh, Conway. Right, right, right. New, two, two new additions. And uh, so that when things happen, they happen in layers. Um, well, the albums, too. We, I mean, I think about that, too. In the early 60s, and people don't realize this, the comedy albums weren't that prevalent. That early 60s. You know, if you had a comedy album and it hit number one, I mean, that was another trajectory in in your career. So you talk about those layers. Doing all those TV shows was one thing, but having those best-selling albums right off the top, always. But they they didn't. What drove the album sales was Jack Parr and television. Now, uh, Bob Newhart, a good Chicago boy, Dan Sorkin, (laughs) I think, was his, his champion, his disc jockey there, played the hell out of him, really loved him. And that that drove Bob Newhart sure. to the television and things, but ours ours was just the opposite. And there's no one way. Yeah. But there, without Jack Park, without uh, Pat Harrington Jr. being the the uh, headliner at the Blue Angel in New York in January '61, who was a favorite guest under the name uh, on Jack Park under the name of Guido Panzini, the Italian golf pro, mm-hmm. and he uh, he he was headliner. He liked us. Yeah. And he said he'd try to get us on the show. And then Steve Allen uh, doing. Uh, that later on and in the meantime the first album was uh live at the purple onion that was everything we knew in a year and a half of show business we crammed into one album it didn't sell why why would it nobody heard of this right. but after jack parr people start wondering you know and uh, talking about our album then we did another one we're with mercury records which is a chicago-based mm-hmm. uh, combo and that then we had to make uh, Two, two live albums a year contractually, and we did about uh, nine live albums. And they weren't wow. like, um, say, the 2,000-year-old man, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner. They were friends in somebody's living room. Wow. wow. <laughs> but we're, wow. We, had to, we had to do it in front of paying customers yeah. at Mr. Kelly's. We recorded one of Mr. Kelly's, and, and so it took a lot of editing. I uh, bet. I bet. <laughs> I bet. We did them, but we were so brave back then. We, we, we were fearless. And that's when we did our best work and, and, and created uh, who we were, sort of like Mike Nichols in Elaine May, mm-hmm. uh, Second City, uh, both the, the smartest people in the room wherever you went. And they they honed that uh, that improv to such a fine line. That, and that's what we were. That was what we were impressed with. Uh, our first job was uh, in Purple Inn in San Francisco in, in 1959 across the street was the Hungry Eye. Nichols and May, Shelley Berman, Mort Saul, Jonathan wow. Winters, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce. God, my wow. God, we saw it all. And we didn't know when when you're there, we didn't even know we were improvers. We just said we make stuff up. <laughs> right, and, uh, Tommy, right. Did, Tommy didn't know he was a, con- a comedian. He said, I, I'm a humorist, <laughs> a monologist or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And so that what was made us so unique, I think, was first of all our, our, our individual defects and and personalities and circumstance and where we lived and uh, then we just did what we did since we didn't uh, know anything about folk songs Tommy started making up stories and he had this wonderful way of convoluting things he was he didn't stutter he didn't stammer he was more like a child who thought he thoughtful everything about this thing <laughs> yeah right. you know how loud they get oh yeah you yeah. Know, uh, yeah. Daniel Boone was a traitor and a trapper, trapdoor or some a tractor. And I said, no, 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 no. And I was patient. So it took us a while to to develop our roles with each other. But uh, to be honest, they were more reversal roles a little bit. Yeah. He was doing part of me, and I was doing part of him. Is the el- he was the eldest? Right. He still is. Right. And uh, so, but why would I, the younger brother, try to correct <laughs> right the, the older one? But, so, but see, the impression I had was you were the oldest. Because I of know, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you had to relate to Tommy because t- I basically picked on him, and little kids can relate, like Abbott and Costello. Right. I didn't like Bud Abbott. He's a mean guy. He, yeah. He was a poor little fat guy, <laughs> you know. But now, I learned later, without him, no one could have stood uh, <laughs> Costello for more than three minutes. He needed that. And they worked together, and they fit like a perfect puzzle. And that's how Tommy and I grew into each other. And that's maybe one of the reasons why we never went on. They say longest uh, over 50 years together. That's yeah. a long time. It is a long but, time. Uh, yeah. We didn't outgrow each other. And maybe we had no other best thing to do. But we championed each other when we went out and did other things. Look at uh, George Carlin. The uh, first time I saw him was at the Playboy Club in Chicago with uh, Burns and Carlin. Wow. And and he was a part of a team. Right. And obviously he was much bigger than that team, but uh, that was probably what gave him his, his start. It fertilized his talent and made, made him be better. And a lot of people do that. But here you're making yeah. this big splash, Dickie. You're making this big splash in television. You're doing your act. You're honing your act yeah. in clubs and on television. But yeah. then they put you, television puts you in a dramatic role in Burke's Law, and then you got a sitcom. And yeah, that was interesting. most interesting. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, you can't be yourselves, but they're going to try to emulate that relationship. So what was the premise of that? The premise was uh, su- such a wrong premise. Yeah. It was so wrong. Uh, but we were re- we were really hot. You yeah. know, they test talent and stuff really hot. And, uh, and Aaron Spelling was a producer. Yeah, and well. he was really hot, was for many decades after that. Sure. And he said, let's put him in as a guest spot. Burke's Law was a wonderful uh, millionaire uh, detective show. Right. And they put Tommy and I together as brothers, as, as uh, misers and rich rich guys that lived in a house full of newspapers and old tires. That's the symbol <laughs> of miser, rich misers. Yeah. And uh, it worked. It really worked. So they said, okay, well, we we got a series for you. But what we're going to do is going to take away your audience. It's going to be a one-camera show. We'll take away your music and your singers. We'll take away uh, your timing because we'll edit it. And then you're going to be a big hit. <laughs> so they took about everything away, and we were we were not experienced in any way, shape, being a filmic actor. We still aren't. 
But they so they wrote a show where Tommy was an angel. And he, he got lost at sea and came back to earn his wings. It was a fantasy thing, of course. And I was the long-suffering brother, same relationship. And I was a young executive in Beverly Hills. And Tommy would come in and out and have wings and disguises. And and, and i tell you the truth, it was the age of Dobie Gillis and yeah. Fired at Gillikens Island. Those things, they didn't have to have much meat or right. substance. Right, right, right. And, uh, and when I look at it, I am so proud of Tommy, and I'm proud of myself, that with such a ill-fitting suit, there were some good things about it. But what was really the best thing the gift was that we knew we never, ever, no matter what, <laughs> wanted ever to have anybody tell us who to be, never have, not have an audience, not have our music, and not be in control of our timing. Well, we are talking to Dickie Smothers, half of the legendary comedy duo, the Smothers Brothers, and there's more when we return on 720 WGN. Day player on 720 WGN, we're talking to comedy legend Dickie Smothers of the Smothers Brothers and his upcoming appearance at I.O. Chicago. All right, now comes 1967, and you're offered your own variety show, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, but now you have complete creative control handed over to you. Reluctantly, they said that, and then they took it back. Right. <laughs> that right. Was right. Well, they of thought course. we were going to fail, of course. But think of the great uh, people that predated us, Jack, say Jack Benny and George Burns, two of my favorite. What was the premise of their shows? They were, Jack, they were both married and they were at home. And that was <laughs> and they it. Were themselves. Yeah. And yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. You know? And so, uh, so anyway, so what happened was it had, had that time, time slot was really dire for CBS to fill it up. They were, they, the, the spot when we went against Bonanza in this, the that season, the '66 season, yeah. um, uh, they were rated at the most watched hour of the week. Right, it was Sunday night at nine o'clock. More TV sets turned on, which was important, and it, they rated 90th or something. They were the last, the last. You know how much money they were losing for advertising. Okay. So they were really um, in desperate needs, desperate. And so why not? A, a variety show is quick to put together. It's less expensive than film, and we could do it right now. And so um, they, they said, okay, the Smothers Brothers. And we were very safe then. That all that civil rights stuff and the, and the counterculture was foaming. It was fermenting yeah, it was developing. in the early 60s. Right, yeah. right, right. And we had short hair, big ears, Middle West stuff. Their daddy was a war hero. They'd sing folk songs. What's, what's, what can go wrong? Or what could go right? They'll probably be in and out. And we'll work on something with substance. And uh, Michael Dan, uh, uh, one of the executives at CBS in, in charge of variety shows and specials and stuff, took a big leap and, and really was our champion. And he changed the direction. Not only did we change what television could put on on a family viewing hour, not unbeknownst to us, variety show was being uh, phased out, except for uh, Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't variety. It was a vaudeville show, a really great one, and uh, they were they were uh, canceling all all the Red Skelton. They were canceling uh, Dan Kay and all the older people. Sure. And it turned around. It was so hot. And by the way, we, our show was not unique. It was a just a regular variety show. It was the elements and the execution and who we booked on the show. Absolutely, that made it unique, topical, yeah. edgy, so, not only re- yeah. unique but yeah. relevant. I think that's. Well, yeah. Yeah, we were really relevant. Now, Carol Burnett was two weeks away from being hired for that show. Wow! And they wouldn't have lost her. They had a they had a, they had an option on her that the option was running out two weeks after they they booked us on the show. Now, say they chose Carol Burnett, 
it never would have been the same. Right. I think they would have been very successful. That, is, that was the most brilliant three-wall show ever, ever. Yeah. The, yeah. the cast, it, it cut ours 18 ways, but it wouldn't have done, it wouldn't driven any political Mm-mm. new no. boundaries. No. It wouldn't have opened doors. So that's why we were, maybe the, uh, maybe with like uh, Isaac Newton, uh, we dis- we discovered one thing. He discovered gravity, and we've been talking about it ever since. Well, you and talk that's about a long time ago. You talk and about they the, talk about us. No, they do, and you talk about the edginess of the writers and the people you brought on the show. So I'm looking at you know yeah. the writers and regular performance: Steve Martin, Don Novello, Rob Reiner, Pat Paulson, of course, uh, Albert yeah. Brooks, and then you went outside that typical variety show box and introduced audiences to musical acts that other variety shows would never touch. George Harrison, Buffalo Springfield, Cass Elliott, uh, The Doors, Glenn Campbell, of course, Peter, Paul, Mary, Ringo, Simon and Garfunkel, The Who. I mean, that was that's that was that great. That was a damn cool show, I got to tell you. And we also had the Juilliard String Quartet. And we had, remember Jackie Leonard? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, he was like a Don Rickles genre, but uh, uh, not... And there's there's different genres in the same insult type of things. He was a good Jewish comic, a little cocker, big heavy guy. Guess what we had him do on our show? He sang a melancholy song, uh, Fool on the Hill. And uh, CBS says, you're crazy. He's a comic. Make him, make him do his comedy stuff. No, it was a melancholy, introspective song that nobody expected. Yeah. And you know what? I was, I was watching that the C- CNN thing the other day, History of Comedy. Comedy, God, right. It is a great. All those films. I never knew that Airplane, which is the best spoof or whatever you would Movie, call it yeah. of all time, was shot frame for frame and almost dialogue for dialogue is uh, zero Air, some airplane drama that was serious. Right, right, and right. Was, when, when they said certain lines within that serious format delivered serious, it was hilarious and yeah. so unexpected. And I think we kept doing a few unexpected things on a on a just a, a normal framework of a show. Singers, dancers, a major A star, uh, maybe two, you know, and that's how you promoted your movie and your records and all that stuff. And CBS would say, you have uh, the, uh, Eddie Albert and uh, Gabor, yep. not Jaja, the other yep. one, yep. Uh, Ava Gabor, and promote Green Acres. You know, you, you had to service certain things. But whenever we didn't, we weren't forced to do that. We we did like to go out and, and, and do the unexpected. Well, the other and, thing, too, is you introduced music videos. That was the other thing. We, we didn't even call them music videos at the time. But in the 60s, you know, the Beatles weren't really doing live television anymore. So you would uh, yeah. you debuted Hey Jude and Revolution yeah. Um, yeah. as a video. And That's it was pretty right. groundbreaking. Yeah, it was. It was. You know, the, you know those things just squirt out. They squirt out when things are going right, yeah. and uh, and I we didn't try to to break new ground. We just did like what's the right thing to do. Tommy said, you know, Tommy was the driven force. Tommy was the driver. Uh, I would have been a retired teacher or a, okay. uh, a, a, a mediocre attorney or a doctor or whatever. Ah. Uh, my life has changed so drastically because of Tom. And it forces out of our control, put us in a family unit that was dysfunctional. And we were bonded more together and decided, you know, that this might be a good thing to try out together. We didn't resent each other. And the funny thing is, mom always liked you best was never an issue. <laughs> uh, we took care of mom. Mom, mom had a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, issues, and but we loved her yeah. to death. And, yeah. and what Tommy discovered improvisationally one day, 
actually screamed out, well, mom liked you best because I'd been beaten up on him for about five minutes on stage, <laughs> how unworthy he was, not only to be a brother, to be alive, to be breathing air and eating food, uh, right, you right. know, and I was ripping his buttons off his coat because he, he, he doesn't even deserve his coat to be buttoned, nothing. You don't even deserve clothes. <laughs> and, then, and after I ran out of gas, totally, this is uh, the, the Crystal Palace in St. Louis, a really hot club back then. And he just looked at me, and the audience was quiet as hell. And he says, oh, yeah? Well, <laughs> Mom always liked you best. Which was, and it was the biggest laugh I've oh, ever Oh, yeah. Still and is. Because it was the last and the biggest nail in his coffin of non-importance. Yeah, and he's had enough. <laughs> he did it himself. Yeah, exactly. And funny thing is, Mom liked him better. And so all these years, he's reminding me of it, and the audience gives him sympathy for it. So that's what siblings do to, to of each course, other. Of course, of course. a double-edged, double entendre there, type of thing. Mom always liked you best. <laughs> there you go. What do you My mean? mom always liked my brother best, and she never liked me. Mom and why you, you and keep, mom... Why do you keep telling me mom always likes you because best? Because she... Every time you get mad, you say, mom always liked you best. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mom always liked you best. You want to know? You always picked on me. You and Mom, you my mom and my brother get together and say we don't like you because Mom liked you best. You know and she why? She never liked me. Wait a minute. Do you know why she liked me best? She. Oh. <laughs> Would you like to know why she liked me best? Sure, she liked me best. Why not? knew mom liked you better. <laughs> you and mom always used to pick on me. That's now I remember. Yeah, now you remember. Mom liked you best and she never liked me. You want to know why? Why? Because I happen to be an only child. <laughs> touchy, touchy. <laughs> Touche. Touche. <laughs> this just isn't your night, Tommy. Your mom you... gave you a dog. My mom gave my brother a dog, and I didn't get to have a dog in more Everybody than Everybody had dogs. I didn't have a dog. You got to have a dog in more than anything in the whole world. I wanted to have a dog of my own. I asked my mom, I said, Mom, I want to I wanna have a dog like my brother Dickie Smothers. He remember me. I'm Tommy Smothers. <laughs> and I never got to all have right, a that dog, is, and I, you wouldn't let it, me play I, with your dog or anything. I remember when I was 10 years old, I said, oh, if I could only have a dog, my brother had a dog, I and I couldn't. Crying, I didn't get to play with your dog, and Why you, you would always tell mom when I play with your dog, "Hey, Tommy's playing with my dog." You remember Tommy, the kid you don't like so much. <laughs> and I didn't get to play with a dog, and I didn't have a dog. Uh, hold it a minute. And before we go any further, you you know you had your own pet already. Crummy chicken. <laughs> well, you wanted it. It's no fun playing with a chicken. They don't bark good. You wanted it. You I said, didn't want that. You wanted to sell the eggs. It was a rooster. <laughs> and every Saturday, my brother, they would, all, the, all of his friends, they get on their, they all get up their dogs and they get their bicycles. And they... <laughs> I didn't have a bicycle either. 
We are talking to comedy legend Dick Smothers, and there's more when we come back on 720 WGN. Now, every week on TV, you know, you're doing the show, and Dick, I know you, you know, you taped the show twice, which was which was the way they were done back then, so you could tweak things, I guess, for the second show and use the best yeah. of both shows. But you know, in the nightclubs, comedy clubs, you had time to refine the refine the act and and the jokes and see what worked and what didn't, and then just massage it and change it for the next time. But this was very tight. I mean, tight. You had you had time only between the first show and the second show to see what About was flying. Hour. Was that was that more challenging? Yeah. I would assume. Yeah. Well, television, live television, even live. It's live television if they tape and they and they edit and they delay it a little bit. It's considered live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Television is get it done. No matter how good it is, we're going to put it on. And so that's the challenge and that's the excitement. That's the excitement of. Uh, improv shows when people go to an improv show yeah. it could be really flat that night oh my god uh there's these personalities have to interact and they're not even writing it so right. just think how scary that is as a performer and uh, uh monday our show was first time the cast would see it and people would show it would be monday at a read-through and uh of course the, the writers are there all the all the other staff is there and the writers left like hell at their piece <laughs> yeah. 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 they're laughing like oh that's so great oh it's wonderful and it, the, the pages are all white there's white pages here yeah. and every time there's a change it's a different color and they stick in a few pages here there, there. so the, the of course the show by friday is a rainbow right right of color. <laughs> right right and and you might have uh, five elements that it has to be rehearsed that we're in plus our our uh, connecting the shows, Tommy and I do our little read-throughs and Tom and Dick spots, but then we have to service the, the acts that we really want, and and we have no time to refine them. You do a couple days, say like two or three hours of rehearsal uh, over a few days, and then it's camera blocking. And that's where the camera's not for you, so you don't get any sense of timing or what's funny. You have to use your instincts, and and of course you're you're not waiting for a dress, but you you're hoping that you're, you're refining it without really a true run-through. And then comes the run-through prior to getting uh, uh, on the, uh, around that time is that run-through prior to getting on stage the block. And you have CBS, you have the sensors, you have all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And things aren't as many times funny as you thought. Right. Uh, right. And then you get on camera, and then we do the dress, by the way. It's like doing a real show. The concert, they show up, and we, we had our, our requirements for the set designer and the writing was that a maximum of of an hour and a half shooting time for an hour show. Okay, and that means you have a couple of set changes. They better be quick. We want the audience. It was almost be, live. It yeah. was almost live. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And we send out a guy that that wasn't a bad comic, comic to talk to the people, keep him going, keep him going. And sometimes uh, the the dress had some great elements. Sometimes it was bad. Sometimes we've used the entire dress rehearsal with flaws because. It had that life we wanted. We never sweetened the show. There weren't any laugh track. And if you didn't earn your laugh, you didn't get it. And so the spontaneity of the show, it rose. I keep thinking of uh, uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, mm-hmm. Andy Hardy. There was a problem that was always solved by putting on a show. And the show was always a mess until, it, until, the, until the direst thing was problem solved and they went on and it was a big hit and they sailed solved the problem sometimes that's the way our show was and you couldn't predict when it would rise sometimes you didn't do anything different uh in the from the from the dress to the air and the air had that energy and 
turned the corner and it was wonderful. And we never knew that until it was over. And then you just jump up and down, hug and kiss. And you say, God, I hope somebody watches this. This yeah. is good. Nikki, yeah. you were great. You did that thing. And so we had the, the, the Who on the show with Exploding Drum, which oh, was famous. Oh, I remember seeing Absolutely. Much, oh, yeah. Yeah, too much powder. Too much, too, people weren't communicating, sort of like the government is now today. And nobody was commuting with the other people. And so there was way too much powder. Supposed to explode, but in dress rehearsal, it went like a fart. Yeah. It's a little fart. Yeah. And that's not a that's not a dynamic way to end <laughs> the Who Especially for the Who, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. We want a boom. Yeah. So it really boomed, and the, and the part of the drum came apart, and uh, Keith Moon was blown off, and to Betty Davis, uh, T- Peter Townsend uh, heard his hearing. Betty Davis, they said, I heard, she was standing, she was on that show, standing next to me out the wings watching. Wow. They said, I hear she fainted. I said, that woman's never fainted in her life. She just... <laughs> Took a couple more drags off her cigarette <laughs> and didn't even bat an eye. And, and the, the, the Who was supposed to finish a certain way. The Tommy would walk on with a dummy guitar and they were supposed to grab it and beat it up and break it like they do their instruments. Yeah. And there's debris around. Tommy's walking around. There's smoke. It's like, no, call, call emergency service. The guy <laughs> grabs my breath guitar and just soldiers on. But how edgy and cool is that for a variety? You would, yeah. What other show could you say that you would see something like that on at that time? Nothing. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, but to see uh, the next year, uh, this was such a hit. We were a half a season the first season. I think okay. it was 20 shows or yeah. something like that. We replaced Gary Moore in February. Right. right. So they had the summer to say, oh, let's reboot. And uh, they laugh-in got on, or George Slaughter produced that, sure. a great producer. And that was a that was a, a form that had never been done. Uh, Hee Haw used that form for country. It really worked a lot of things. Very unlike all clip 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 clip. Carol Burnett had their option picked up or, or exercise. So she did her first season right after us in the, in the next studio. We used to watch her, her work out. And so there was a new energy in live television and what could be said. And then all in the family came along. I don't, I don't, we don't take any credit for that, but. Oh, I think you have to. I mean, you think about the, how, how that, that flowed on CBS really from being, you know, they were, they were, it was rural shows. It was really kind of dumbed down comedies. And then this, it did. It opened the door to talent and greatness. It really did. In fact is some of the stuff we did civil rights wise, black and white. Oh yeah. uh, That was satire. Then it was, it was didn't raise an eyebrow. We couldn't do them today, and you couldn't. I no. guarantee you, all in the family. Even though he was Archie Bunker, was the bunt of it, and and it, it pointed the, the the finger at how unfair and stupid and ignorant to treat anybody like that kind of guy was. Uh, it would be wouldn't be on. There'd be too many uh, groups protecting themselves. So uh, things things change, and we did we did make that available, but it's like. Uh, uh, we we don't and and I think Pat Paulson was the genius idea running him for president. Sure, <laughs> uh, seriously, he took second in in New Hampshire. That's crazy. He took in primary uh, distance, distance second, by the way. And he said uh, he went on a campaign tour and he said, "Dicky, you know, there's a whole different set of groupies that really like politicians. <laughs> they like them just as much as rock stars. I guarantee you." You never let that experience change who you guys were. I was watching a clip like from a couple of years ago on Craig Ferguson, and still yeah, edgy, still poli- yeah, still Wasn't political. 
Yeah, it was, it was great. You're not a pilot. Then why did you go up with me? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. That's but, another way steep in the big money bit underneath. Yeah. Why are we following a leader getting on his plane when he doesn't know how to fly the right. fucking plane? <laughs> the pilot. Does that sound familiar internationally today? I don't know. Dick, again, what an honor uh, it has been to talk with you. Well, thank you. i got to make up a good career. You're, you do. You do. <laughs> Thanks again, Dickie. Thank you.